Amen. Good morning. How you doing, church? All right, all right, all right. I know it's early, but I know most of you have had your coffee. It's sitting out there in the hallway. How you doing, church? All right, that's, that's a little bit better. Um, when I, I, I'm a student pastor. I'm Landon. You, you know, I'm not Joe. Um, I don't know why I pointed at my belly. You can infer from that. Uh, yeah, there it is. I know you're awake, guys. Come on. I'm the student pastor here. I'm Landon. When I make a joke, when I ask questions, you can talk back. It's fine. We're going to pretend like we're in student ministry, like it's a Thursday night. So audible responses are okay. If I make a joke, you can laugh. Even if it's a pity laugh, it makes me feel better. So we're going to practice that. Pity laugh. Come on, guys. <laughs> right? Like, my self-esteem just went up. I've, my love language, words of affirmation, it makes me feel good when you respond. So come on, let me live out my, my, my words of affirmation here by you practicing that today. All right? So love on me by practicing that. But hey, I'm so excited that you're here. Um, we, we're going to be continuing on uh, in First Thessalonians. And last week, Joe opened it up with the really difficult passage, the highly contested passage of the greeting, talking about faith, hope, and love, and left me like the super easy chill, non-disputed for hundreds of years, topic of election and being chosen and predestination. Uh, So, you know, Professor Joe last week, man, he brought the hard truth, and this week, adjunct Landon um, gets the easy. But because of that, like, just tune in, make sure you have your coffee, because we're at least going 45 to 50, no, I'm kidding. Uh, You'll be out of here in time for lunch, hopefully. Um, So, come on, guys, like, that's a joke. It's super early. There we go. All right, so let's dive in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. It says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, that you are loved by who? Loved by God, and that he has what? Chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. You know that we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from who, church? From the Holy Spirit. Awesome. Remember, you can talk back aloud. When I ask those questions, it's on the screen. You can read it. Read it loud. Read it proud. But we're going to dive right in. And before we, we get to this, uh, this tough passage that he talks about in verse 4, I don't want you to miss this. If you miss everything else, church, I'm, I'm giving you permission. If you miss it all, walk away with one truth today. Let's go back to verse 4. We're going to read this again. Verse 4, it says this, we know, brothers and sisters, that you are what? Before chosen, you are what? Loved. Church, you are loved by God. This is an important, deep theological truth that I do not want you to miss. You need to realize this when you walk out of here today. Church, you are loved by God. God loved you. God chose you. He loved you because he is loved. Nothing you did to deserve that love but he loved you anyways. In church, you are loved by God. If you miss everything else, I want you to know, I want you to own that truth that you are loved by God. That's where you can say amen or something good because you are loved by God, church. Amen. There, there we go. You are loved by God. And now we get to the fun part. You are loved by God and he has chosen you. Amen. He has chosen you. And so here's, here's uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just give you a little preface here. There's going to be, I'm going to use some words interchangeably here. In this passage, he says chosen. Some of you heard it as elect or predestination or the view of Calvinism. So I may say these words interchangeably, and that's okay. I just want you to know where I'm at and where we're going. But Paul right here is talking about you are chosen. And in this room, I'm going to categorize everybody into one of three camps. 
You're going to fall into one of these three camps this morning. One, you're going to be like super nerd over theology and doctrine, and this is going to like excite you, like you're pushing those glasses up and you're ready. That was, come on, there's another joke, guys. You're putting like, let's go, I'm ready to dive deep into it. Some of you, you're like, hey, look, camp two, I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, I love people, that's all that matters to me. Camp three, you're looking and you're like, I thought we were at well-fed for brunch right now. I didn't mean to step into this deep topic. And that's okay. God has something for all of us. But we're going to fall into those camps. So how do we deal with this topic of election? What does it mean? How do we deal with this? And there's going to be people sitting in here, maybe right next to you. Some of you are going to side on free will is it. And some of you are like, no, we are chosen and we are the elect. And that's okay. That's okay. It is a hot topic within the church. It's contested. It's debated. And that's okay. And so I want you to know that before we go in there. But we're going to focus on this, which Paul's talking about being chosen. And it is a theme that runs through Scripture. So those sitting on the free will side of things can't say, well, where do you get that? Because I'm about to show you. Because it is in Scripture. It's a theme that runs through Scripture. And it starts all the way back in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls out Abraham. And that's the language he uses. God called him out. God picked him. God picked, he chose Abraham. And then we move a little bit further, and we're in the book of Exodus. And there's this nation called Israel, and he chooses Israel. And he chooses them to be what he calls his treasured possession. So God chose Abraham. God chose and called out the nation of Israel to be his treasured possession. And then this same language is deliberately transferred into the New Testament. And we see it here in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. But when we see this language used and talked about chosen, elect, predestined, whatever it may be, it's there to produce something. When we see this language, it is there and it's producing its practical purposes. And and I've seen four things that I want to show you. When we see this language used, we see these four purposes for election used as well. Number one, the first thing that we see with this is it's there for assurance of salvation. When we see that God uses this language of chosen and elect It's there so that we can have confidence that we are with God. We are loved by God. We are chosen by God. And once we have him in our heart, we're not going anywhere. It is there to produce assurance of salvation. The second thing that we see is it's there to produce holiness. When this language is used, it's meant to stir us towards holiness. There's a word, very Christian term called sanctification. What does that mean? To look more like who? To look more like Jesus every day. Right? It's this process of sanctification that we look more and more like Jesus. And when we know we are chosen, we know we are elect, it's there to stir us towards holiness. It drives us to love Jesus more and to look more like him every day. The third thing, when we see these words used, it's there to help us towards holiness or, or humility. When we are chosen by God, when we are loved by God, it's not something that we have done. Am I right, church? It's not something that I have done. It's not my works. I can't earn that salvation, can I? No. It's there to produce this humility in my life that, man, it's something that God has done in me. It's something that God has done in my life, in my heart, and it pushes us towards humility. And and lastly, the fourth thing I think it produces in our lives is it stirs us to witness. 
And this is where the Calvinism, free will, Arminianism, like, this is where it gets, like, tangled up. And people are like, well, I don't know. Because if I'm elect, well, why should I go witness? Well, that's not what we see here. When we are chosen by God, it should stir us towards, man, God has done something in my life, and now I can't hold this message back anymore. I can't hold it. When you're loved by God, you want to tell people, don't you? Mm, There we go. Remember, words of affirmation. Talk back to me. Yes, it stirs us to witness. It stirs us to tell our neighbors about what God has done in my life. When we see this language used, there's no real explanation that I can find in Scripture that tells why someone is chosen, except for one thing, God's love. We're going to talk about God's love. It's going to be wrapped up in everything we talk about this morning. It, It all comes back to God's love for you. When this language, when this terminology is used in the Old, or Old and New Testament, it's all wrapped up in God's love. In Deuteronomy, it talks about how they were chosen. It says this, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples or the fewest of all, but it was because the Lord loved you. God chose this nation. God chose these people because he loved them. No other reason than that. We move into the New Testament and Paul marries love and chosen together so well. Brothers and sisters, it says he loved you and he has chosen you. He chose us why? Because he loves us. And he loves us why? Because he loves us. Not because of anything that we have done, anything that we could do, but God loves us because he loves us and he is love. And because of that, he called us out. He chose us, church. In this whole argument, uh, I was talking to Joe, and I, he, he filled me on this illustration. I think it's so, it's so beautifully done. Uh, I want everyone to put your hands up like you're driving a car. Now, I'm talking about everyone in this room. Come on, we're all getting student ministry here. But if I don't see you putting your hands up, you're not obeying. There we go. All right, hands up. We're driving a car. You're, in, you're on the highway. Who's in the right lane going slow? Come on, who's a slow driver? Yeah, this is truth time. Who's in the left lane? And who's like that safe? Sometimes you get like frustrated and pass people, but you're in that middle lane. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. We'll pray for you. You need to go in that fast lane. All right, get pedal to the metal here. But we're driving down that highway, and all of a sudden we see this sign. And it says, eternal salvation, exit here. Who's turning? Right? We're turn, turn your car. Come on, don't just show me. Turn your car. Right? You took that exit. You're on that exit ramp now, right? You're still going down that exit ramp, and you look in your rearview mirror. Everyone look in your rearview mirror. On the back of that sign, it says blank. You're, put your name there. It's destined for eternity. Okay, question. Did you choose to exit, or were you predestined to exit? Yes. I heard the answer. That's amazing. Yes. The answer is Yes. The answer to that question is yes. At the end of the day, Landon, in his human pea-sized brain, right? I'm talking about my ignorance there. You can laugh. My pea-sized human brain, I can't comprehend all the works of God. Isaiah 55 tells us this, that his ways are what? Higher than mine. His thoughts are what? Higher than mine. I have to have the faith to say, can God predestine me before eternity to choose him? And does he have the power, the holy, the infinite power to give me the free will to choose him? Yes. Yes, that's where I stand on this debate. Does God have the power to predestine me? Does God have the power to give me free will? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And I have to be 
okay with that. I can't let my process of sanctification become hinged on this. I can't let my pride of getting stuck on this one piece of doctrine hang on this. And church, you can't either. We have to continue to look more and more like Jesus and continue wrestling with this. If you're like, I'm more on this side of it, that's fine. Keep wrestling with it. But don't let the process of sanctification, looking more like Christ, be hinged upon this one thing. Continue to grow with him. Continue to love him and have the, the faith to say, yes, God, you are big enough. And Paul moves on from this, and we are going to as well because I'm done talking about it. The end, that word right there. It says this, the gospel comes in word, verse, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word. The gospel comes in word. Paul doesn't say, we came to you. He doesn't say, Paul, I'm, I'm coming to you. He says, our gospel came to you. He was so focused on the gospel that when Paul came to town, what came with him? The gospel came with him. When Paul rolled into Thessalonica, it wasn't just him and his homies. It was him and the gospel. The gospel came into town. Our go- he, says, he doesn't say our gospel came to you only in word, but no, our gospel came not only in word. Church, the gospel communication demands more than words, but it never demands less. The gospel is meant to be communicated, but it never demands less than this. Their gospel has specific calling and content calling for worthy and clear words. His words were important. His words were so important that he tells us in the book of Ephesians when he's writing to this church there, he says, pray for the words that come out of my mouth. Pray for words. Give me the words to say to this church. Back in the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Jeremiah, and God actually touched Jeremiah's mouth and gave him the words to say because Jeremiah felt and was inadequate. God gave him the specific words what matters for us is not what our, what's in our mouth, but the words of our mouth. I, I heard this recently. Billy Graham may be a better preacher than you, and some of you are in this room, you're like, that's for dang sure. Uh, <laughs> Billy Graham may be a better preacher than me, but his gospel is no better than mine. His gospel is no better in mine. This is exactly what, what's, what's happening here. The gospel you preach has all the power of God to create new life. And we get to be a part of that miracle when we share the gospel. There's this old um, Catholic guy, Francis of Assisi. Most of you have heard of him, right? He has a famous, famous quote, uh, and, and it's this. He says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, what? Use words. This is wrong. This is not what Paul's getting at. This isn't right. It's not just when necessary, use words. The gospel is meant to be communicated. Paul is here in Thessalonica, not just showing up, but actually proclaiming the gospel to the people here. Jesus, in the New Testament, he he rolled into town, went to synagogues, and what did he do? He communicated his message. It's not just his actions. The gospel is meant to be communicated, church. This message, this series is called Hope and Holiness in a Hostile World. And I think we all agree that we live in a a world that is hostile and getting a little worse as it goes on. Am I right? And and the devil, I'm going to tell you, church, the devil wants to silence you. And it's okay with him if you just live a good Christian life. It's, It's fine. You go and you live because that's called moralism. Being a good person, that's just morals. Being a Christian, stepping out in faith, we have to communicate God's truth. We have to share his word 
to our friends, to our coworkers. He is fine if you live a good Christian life and you keep your mouth shut because you're doing his job for him. I know that's harsh. But the gospel is calling for words. We should be communicating this. When Paul came to Thessalonica, the gospel came, and it came in the form of words. And so, church, are you sharing the gospel? And maybe some of you, you're, you're young and believers, or just like, and you're inviting people to church. That's a great first step. But that's not all it's intended to be. Uh, Paul, uh, Joe joked the other day, if... if if Paul was planning a church, like he planted this church in three weeks, and how, man, Paul would look at us and say, like, three years, wow. I, I think he would say the same thing about sharing the gospel. Oh, you're, you're, you're inviting people to church. That's, that's a good first step, but come on. The gospel has changed your life. Now let's communicate this. Church, communicate the gospel. Do you care enough about your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family to share the gospel to them, not just in how you act, but also in words? But there was more. It goes on in verse 5. It says, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are like, you're on your seats. You're like, we are finally talking about the Holy Spirit. Praise Jesus. Like, let's go, right? Like Some of us are like charismatic that way, and that's fine. Some theologians, they discuss what does it mean when it says the gospel came in power? The gospel came in power. And we see in the book of Hebrews, when the, the apostles went and they shared the gospel, a lot of times it was miracles were accompanied with the sharing of the gospel to prove it. Like this is what's happening. God and his gospel changes things. And that may have happened in Thessalonica. God may have allowed Paul and, and Silas and Timothy to perform some miracles, but that's not what we're reading about. I think what Paul's talking to, to here is changes that took place in the hearts of the believers in Thessalonica. When the gospel came to these people and they gave their life to Christ, there was visible change. When they heard the Holy Spirit, they responded to it. There's a guy, his name's Leon Morris. He, he wrote this. In many places, we see evidence that the gospel is power, for God is in it. It's not simply that the gospel tells of power, though this too is true. But when the gospel is preached, God is there and God is working. That effective power of the gospel comes through the working of the Holy Spirit, and now he wants to work to the effect of the new creation. And this is awesome. When the gospel is presented and the Holy Spirit is there, it takes a weight off our shoulders. How many of you, and you're sitting in here, you're like, the thought of sharing the gospel today with my neighbor terrifies me because I don't have the words to say. Anyone feel that way? It's okay to raise your hand on this because I, like, yes. I think we a lot of times have we've felt this way. We don't have the words to say. But when the Holy Spirit is present, and like Paul was saying, I pray, the church, he asked the church, give me the words to say. The Holy Spirit, when he shows up, it takes a weight off our shoulders. We don't have to be the best used car salesman. We don't have to have the slickest techniques and, the, and all the right things, the, the, the most powerful rhetoric. Because the Holy Spirit changes lives. Our, our job is just to talk about it. And yes, we should be wise and use persuasive words when we share the gospel, but behind it, we must pray that the Holy Spirit is at work, that the Holy Spirit is tapping on someone's heart to say yes to that gospel. True conversion isn't just getting a person to make a decision or say the sinner's prayer, but it's, it's saying rather that the Holy, Holy Spirit must impart new life. Because it's only him who can give new life. If I can talk you into the gospel, I can talk you out of the gospel, unless the Holy Spirit is present. 
And that is a weight off our shoulders. That is a weight off my shoulders. And, and Paul says this, the gospel came by the Holy Spirit. Behind the power was the reality of God himself. His spirit could touch our human spirit and begin to minister into our deepest needs, our, our deepest thoughts. And that's what's happening here in the church of Thessalonica. The Holy Spirit was present and was ministering to them. And what happened is they were changed. We saw that in verse 3. They were living by three things that Joe covered last week, faith, hope, and love. Because the Holy Spirit was present, their conversion was true, and they began to act like it. They began to live that way. And so church, before we move on, are we a church that is living and communing with the Holy Spirit? Church, are are, are we feeling convicted when we aren't living and walking with the Holy Spirit and asking him to be present in everything that we're doing? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us? He continues on in verse 5. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. Are you living a life that is on mission, church? Are you living a life that's on mission? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, I think we can all agree, they're men of integrity, right? Men of character. Would you agree with that statement? I heard like three people. Would you agree with that statement, church? Yes, they are men of character. They, They practice what they preached. They weren't preaching just to get praise from people. They weren't preaching just to get rich and make a quick buck. They lived openly before God to please him, not just men. There's an old pastor, his name is John Calvin, and he he has this quote and comments, and it's kind of funny about how preachers need to be obedient to the congregation that they're talking to. And he says this, it would be better for him to break his neck going into the pulpit if he doesn't take the pains to be the first to follow God. Let me read that again. It would be better for the, for the pastor, for him to break his neck going to the pulpit if he doesn't take the pains to first practice what he preaches. It's not just the preacher he's talking to, people. He's saying we've got to let our words align with our actions. We've got to live the way what we're saying. We've got to practice what we preach and this is a harsh truth, and I'm going to say it. I wrote it so I don't forget it because I, I also don't want to look at you while I say it because it's pretty convicting. <laughs> it's convicting for me too. If you're not living a life for Christ on the heart level, we should probably keep quiet about being a Christian. If you're not living a life for Christ on the heart level, we should probably keep our mouth shut because we do more damage than good for the cause of, cause of Christ if our life doesn't back up the truth of the gospel. If we aren't practicing what we preach, church, we are doing more harm for the cause of the gospel than if we would just keep quiet. We need to practice what we preach. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and begin to walk with him, living that life on mission. These guys, they weren't living a life that was on mission, right? These were, they were living a life that was on mission right in their context and Church, you, you're called to be missionaries in your own context. Some of you, you're going to go back to work. Maybe it's a cubicle or an office on Monday. Some of you, you're going back to a job site. Students in the room, you're going back to school on Monday. And you are called to live life on mission right where you are. You're called to your coworkers, to your classmates. Some of you, you're going home, and that is your mission field. And you are called to be a missionary right there. Are you living a life on mission Right where you are. Are you taking the gospel where you go? 
Is your heart broken for your friends, your neighbors, your family who don't know Jesus yet? Band, you guys can come back up. We're, we're going to wrap up here pretty soon. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he continues on and he says, and you yourself became what? Became imitators. You became imitators of us and the Lord. Church, are we living a life that's worthy of imitation? Are we living a life that's worthy of someone following after me? There's a, there's a term, a disciple. Does anyone know what the term disciple is? Like, let's even go out of the Christian concept, context. What is a disciple? Say it again. Follower. Uh, a disciple is someone who follows someone else, follows a teacher. In our Christian context, right, us as, as believers, we are disciples of who? Ooh, we got A-plus students in here. We are followers and students of Jesus. And, and in our in student ministry on Thursday nights, we are walking through a five-week lesson on what it means and how to be a disciple, how to be a disciple. So the students knew that answer. They were just quiet because they're shy because of all of you guys. But we're, we're walking through this. A disciple is someone who studies under a teacher. In our, in our context, we're, we are following and living out Jesus' example. And as disciples, we're, we're walking through Mark chapter 9, Mark 6, Mark 9, all, all through this story. And Jesus, it talks about how he was on his way as he was teaching them. And I think that's important. On his way, he was teaching them. What that tells us is Jesus was doing life with these guys. And while he was doing life with his, his disciples, his 12 friends, he was teaching them. And he was giving them opportunities to do ministry themselves. And we know the disciples were sometimes, uh, I'm going to use a nice word, not smart, right? And they messed up. And they didn't do things the right way. And so what did Jesus do? He stopped, he explained, and he gave them chances to do it again. And he explained the same truth again and again. Why? Because they just didn't get it. Sometimes they would just miss it. They would fail. They would mess up. But then sometimes they would succeed, right? You know the stories. They would sometimes succeed, and that was good. And Jesus would, yeah, give them a pat on the back and then encourage them to do a little bit more. A, a disciple is someone who follows someone's leadership and we are supposed to imitate Christ and that's what these disciples were doing and Paul's telling us this in this verse you became imitators of us just like of the Lord right and of the Lord he's urging them urging them to continue following him just like he's following Christ how many of you have kids how many of you have taught a kid how to tie a shoe how many of you can say that's one of the most frustrating things you've ever done uh, uh, luckily, I'm not there. We stick with Velcro and like Crocs, right? Because I don't want to do that yet. But how do you teach a kid to tie a shoe? You show them first. You get down on your knee with your tennis shoe, and you begin to tie that shoe and let them watch. Am I right? And then you let them do what? Try. And if you have a kid that succeeded on the first time, you are an amazing parent. Come teach me how you did that. I want to learn lessons from you. Um, but no, they, they fail. And so what do you do? You show them again. You tie their shoe for them. And you do this over and over and over until they what? Until they get the lesson. Until they have succeeded and they know how to do this. You're passing on this information. This is what Paul was doing. He's telling us here, you became imitators of us 
and now of me. He's not being arrogant and saying, imitate me, follow me. No, what he's saying is, look, I'm learning from Christ. I'm passing on the torch. This is what I've learned on how to follow Christ and how to be a disciple. Now you do this too. Be imitators of me just like I am of Christ. Church, are you living a life that's worthy of being imitated? I think most of you are. I look across this room and I see people who have been followers of Jesus for a few years and a little longer. We're not going to call anyone out, but some of you have been following Jesus for a long time, right? And that's amazing. We've been following Jesus and a lot of you in this room are serving your hearts out all over this place. You're passing on what you've known, but since COVID, there's some of us who we're sitting here soaking up and we have lessons that we need to teach. We need to pass the baton and we haven't stepped out. We we're getting very comfortable. And some of these chairs may even have your imprint. It's time to start imitating. It's time to start passing on, right? When Paul is talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter two, right? Same Timothy who's here with him. He's telling him, this is what I'm teaching you. You're a disciple of me, Timothy. You're gonna teach someone who's gonna teach someone. We're all called to do that, church. We are all called to pass on the knowledge that we have gained, helping others follow Jesus better. And so as a student pastor, I get a lot of leeway, or at least I like to think I do. I might get in trouble later, but I I like to, to give my pitch every time I get up here because I can't do this by myself, church. I I'm doing ministry on Thursday nights with students. And we see between 50 and 75 students every week. And I've got some amazing sold out leaders who love these kids and are doing a phenomenal job. But we can't do it on our own. We need more help. And I see some of you in this room and you need to be serving. You've been soaking up long long enough. It's time to start pouring back out, church. I need your help. Mike LaBella needs your help. Rebecca Farron in, in the preschool, she needs your help. We need people who are ready to love on students, love on kids, and pass on what you have learned. Are you living a life that's worth imitating? Those of you who are saying yes, it's time to step in and start doing it. We need people ready to love on kids and pass on what you've learned. So we're gonna end here as I lay that down heavy. Come find me, come find Rebecca, come find Mike. We wanna get you involved in student ministry, children's ministry, preschool. But I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna close in worship. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us, as your word says. You loved us. Thank you for choosing us. And Father, I pray for the people in this room that we would be living a life that is worthy of imitation. And Father, that we wouldn't be so comfortable just soaking up knowledge, but rather that we would be stepping out in faith and saying, Lord, what I've learned from you, I'm gonna pass to faithful men and women. So Father, we give this to you now. In your son's name we pray.